Baseball isn't just numbers, numbers, numbers. This game is not being played on computers. You don't do that with a bunch of statistical gimmicks. You don't put a team together with a computer. We're talking weighted runs created plus. Expected Woba. Sweet spot rate. Defensive runs above average. Average exit velocity. Barrel rate. XFIP. BABIP. SIERA. We are above replacement radio. And welcome to Above Replacement Radio, we're talking baseball, kind of whenever. I'm your host, Chris Giant. Over there on the other side of the screen is Daniel Curran. How you doing, Daniel? Chris, I'm doing very well today. Uh, it's been a season of us being wrong all the time. And how does this season end? With us being wrong, drastically wrong, about how this World Series was going to go in Arizona. Yes, yes. Uh, we... we... Hopped on the podcast um, after game two, and we were, you know, pretty excited because it was a, it was a split, it was a split in those first two games. It was going back to Arizona, and we were like, man, it's this is going to be competitive. Like game one was was a great sign of what's to come, and and we're gonna see, we're gonna see this no doubt come back to Texas, and uh, the only team coming back to Texas is the Rangers to celebrate the championship that they've just won. Yeah, the Rangers, they won all three games in Arizona. I didn't think a team was going to win all three. You didn't think a team was going to win all three, but that's exactly what happened. Um, they won both games one and uh, both games three and five on like really good pitching and timely offense. And game four was just, I know it was only a four run game, but it was a blowout effectively. Yeah, for sure. I mean, they got out to a 11, 11 to nothing lead um, early on, 10 nothing in the first three innings. Yeah, uh, you know, it, after such a after such a wild season, um, with so many unexpected results, uh, that continues. And you know, the the Rangers went here in five instead of six or seven, and uh, it was a little bit, it was a little bit anticlimactic, a little bit, uh, just kind of, you know, at the first, what the first like seven innings were were. Yeah, you know, it was a good game. Uh, in eight game innings, five, even. But um, yeah, first eight innings, even yeah, and then um, but you know, it ends up being a five nothing ball game. Uh, and it ends in five games, but um, you know, it's it's something where you have to be happy. You have to be extremely happy for the Rangers fan base. Yeah, I mean, it's it's the first uh, World Series championship in franchise history. Uh, there are now only five teams in Major League Baseball that have yet to win a World Series, being the Brewers, the Padres, the Rockies, the Mariners, and the Rays. Um, and yeah, Rangers fans, it's been a long time coming. You know, I mean, if you were around in 2011, you've probably never stopped thinking about it. Uh, I mean, you know, I one, the one joke I made last night was uh, for the third time in franchise history, the Rangers are one out away from winning the World Series. Of course, it's the first time they actually came through on it. Um, and, you know, it was... It's definitely a feel-good story for a lot of those fans. Uh, there was that picture of Adrian Beltre holding the trophy, which made me really happy, is, and I'm sure it made all baseball fans happy because, you know, he was on that 2011 team, on that 2011 team that came oh so close to winning it, um, and he's you know been with the Rangers ever since as a player and in the front office. Um, there's a lot of players to be happy for. Corey Seager won World Series MVP again for the second time in his career, which is pretty remarkable. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think, I think it's you know it's it's definitely a result that I'm very happy with. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, you know, either way, it was going to be some sort of feel good story going on, uh, whether it be the the Diamondbacks or the Rangers. You know, neither of us, uh, neither of us have any memory really of of either team winning. You know, the Diamondbacks won in our lifetimes, but you know, we're too young to to remember that but with the rangers like yeah I mean, literally, walk, yeah with the rangers literally they they had never won it and they'd been you know they've been around since 1961 they've been in texas since 1972 um so yeah it's a big thing and obviously we we kind of remember a little bit uh 2011 and how heartbreaking that was and uh you know just the level of uh despair that had to go on you know at bush stadium in those uh in that in that game six. So, you know, it, I'm sure there's still, there's obviously always the bad memories of that, but you, now they, now they finally have one. Um, and, uh, just to get, get into, you know, kind of a, a game by game recap 
of uh of games three, four, and five. In game three, uh the Rangers get out to a three nothing lead in what was it the third inning? Yeah, and it was a core it was another Corey Seeger home run that uh made it three nothing. Because I feel I feel like I have my Corey Seeger home runs in in different orders. I, I just forget yeah. when he hit which ones. And I, I know he hit a bunch, but Yeah, so the Rangers scored all three of their runs in the third inning, uh in that game. And uh yeah, it was a uh Nathaniel Lowe double, a Marcus Semyon single to bring him in, and then uh Corey Seeger hit a two run home run. It was hit hundred and fourteen miles per hour. Uh somehow only had a nine eighty expected batting <laughs> average despite being out in all 30 ballparks. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure how that one worked, but it did. Well, yeah, it's because it's because uh, stat expected statistics don't account for what part of the ballpark you hit it in. Whereas yeah, those, uh, those metrics, the 30 out of 30 ballparks does uh, account for where you hit it in the ballpark. Um, so yeah, it, it can be weird like that. Um, and then in game, yeah, in game three, Max Scherzer goes three innings and then has to come out with back tightness. He went three shutout innings and then it's a bullpen game a little bit for the Rangers. Um, but John Gray comes through big three innings, uh, three innings, no runs, no walks, one hit, three strikeouts, a 33% called strike and whiff rate and one batted ball in the sweet spot zone out of seven, which is a really, really low percentage. Uh, yeah, John Gray really, really came through in a moment he probably didn't expect to have to come through in. Yeah, he did. He was actually slated to start game four. And, you know, all of a sudden it's, oh, by the way, we need you out there right now, actually. Because I don't know if he was even warming up. You know, like, Serger kind of came out very abruptly in that game. He threw one warm-up pitch in the fourth, and that was it for him. So, uh, you know, they had to get him up very uh, impromptu. And yeah, three three shutout innings with one hit and three strikeouts, a thirty three percent called strike and whiff rate. Uh, excellent outing from him. Yeah, on such on quite literally zero notice. Yeah, you know that's like that's a guy that's a starter too. It's not like he's used to. I know he's relieved a little bit in these playoffs, but you know he's not used to having his name called like that in the bullpen. So to make that adjustment on the fly in the World Series and to come through, uh, that that means something. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, and. Yeah, he just wasn't. Yeah, wasn't expecting it at all, and it was a close game. It was a competitive game. It's you know he didn't have too much room for, for error. It could have easily blown up in his face a little bit, but um, puts out a really really strong performance um, with with those three shutout shutout innings, and then the rest of the bullpen uh, also continues to do their work. The rest of the bullpen outside of Gray went three shutout innings with. Uh, five strikeouts and no walks um you know it, it was a it was a it was a it was a master class by the rangers bullpen for sure yeah it absolutely was uh overall six innings pitched four hits one run allowed uh no walks and eight strikeouts which is pretty remarkable um through six innings uh yeah i mean the diamondbacks did score one run kind of late um and they did uh no there was some questionable umpiring at points but i mean like the rangers played very timely defense they got that uh that really good double play in the eighth inning to end that uh to tell Marte hit a ball 114 miles an hour that was fielded nicely by seager um that was obviously very well done yeah yeah it was it was a very important play um i imagine it probably had to be one of the more impactful plays in terms of uh win probability uh if i just double check here on uh mm-hmm. on baseball reference because yeah i mean a double play in which you know the team who grounds into that double play is is down two and kind of in a good situation where they only have one out um yeah it, it does it definitely makes for it was a third according to baseball savant it was the third most impactful play of the game yeah i, I think on baseball reference it's tied for tied for second for uh 10 percent um it it you know increase the Rangers chances of winning by 10% that one play. So um, yeah, pretty, pretty impactful for sure. Um, So yeah, the, the Rangers come through and Rangers bullpen comes through as well as their offense in the timely moments and they win game three, then game four, it is 
uh, was it? Andrew 10 nothing Heaney. after the third. Yes. <laughs> 10 nothing after the third. Yeah, I mean, that one That one just looked tough. Um, there's there's a lot of discourse going on about the, the Diamondbacks doing a bullpen game in the World Series. Uh, clearly, none of the people arguing that watched, uh, you know, the game in uh, the NLCS where they did the exact same thing and won. And if they didn't, they might not have made it to the World Series. Um, and even still, I mean, I know Ryan Nelson pitched very well in relief, but it was in garbage time. They were already down for most of that. And, I mean, like, who else did the Diamondbacks have? I mean, I know that Ryan Nelson, like I said, pitched well. He would have been the guy to start game four. But uh, I think we would have gotten the same reaction regardless. Yeah, I mean, Ryan Nelson just overall this season had an ERA and FIP over five. Um, you know, I I think you just generally would rather just take the bullpen game. And if Ryan Nelson were to go out um, and, and pitch for the Diamondbacks and start for them, it was probably going to be on a very short leash anyway, and it probably would have been uh, an inevitable bullpen game, you know, if, if he's only going two or three innings. So Yeah, and to his credit, he pitched well in relief, five and a third inning, three hits, one run, no walks, and six strikeouts. Um, you know, I mean, obviously that's a good start, but, uh, you know, I mean, he, he came into relief when it was already 10 to nothing. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, you know, it's it's definitely not the same definitely not the same stakes and you know you can't say for sure that he would have done that if he was if he was starting the game um it's you know it's it's hard to hard to judge that for sure um and uh a stat you put down regarding the rangers offense and their 11 runs scored uh the rangers offense also had 15 hard hit balls in game four which are tied for six most in a world series game in the stat cast era and they had a 51.7% hard hit rate, which was 11th highest uh, in the in the StatCast era. So, and I imagine a lot of that activity happened in the first few innings. They really, really came to hit. Um, and I think, you know, that that was like one of the first instances we saw the, the Arizona bullpen sort of show some weakness, um, you know, we hadn't really seen much of that before. I guess maybe the Paul Seawald blown save, but that was, you know, against Corey Seeker specifically. It's it hasn't been we haven't really seen the Diamondbacks bullpen as a whole uh kind of lose it like that in a game. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Um yeah, I mean it was it it was tough for the Diamondbacks late in that game. Um and really just in every game. I mean the bullpen was a question mark during the regular season it it got a lot better uh in the you know throughout the first three rounds of the playoffs and in the world series it kind of just crumbled yeah yeah it was um yeah it was not the same as it was against philadelphia or la um just didn't have didn't have the same effect necessarily um and yeah i mean i feel like it was it was sort of due to happen um because you know it's given the names and how they did in the regular season it was hard it was going to be hard for them to keep keep that pace up um heading into the series and and yeah i mean in a bullpen game you you're not going specifically only to your three best bullpen guys like for example seawald or thompson or um or uh kevin ginkle like you know, you're, you're going to some of your sixth or seventh options. And unfortunately they were not able to get the job done in game four. Um, so yeah, the, the Rangers win 11 to seven after, uh, it was kind of funny. It was, there was yeah, a little Lourdes bit of Florida Scurriel Jr. Hit a big free run Homer. Yeah. There was a, there was a little bit of a late game, um, which by the way, that was the only home run the D backs hit in games three, four and five. Right. Um, right, and it was true. what was the what was the score at the time of it? Um, like eleven to two. I think eleven to two. Yeah. Yeah. And he killed the rally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he killed it. Most importantly, yeah. <laughs> um, would have been much better off with a with a little base hit through the hole there. Yeah. Killed the rally, unfortunately. Um, yeah, I believe it was eleven to two. Made it eleven to five. And then the 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 win probability didn't change according to baseball's Avant. Texas was still at a hundred percent when he hit it. Wow, 
Um, makes sense. You know, it was a six run game in the eighth. Uh, and then, and then, yeah, they scored two more in the two more in the ninth and the Rangers eventually win. D- don't pull off the, uh, the, another great heartbreak and blow a, an 11 run lead. Um, they do not do that. So that moves on to game five, which was pretty cool. Um, you know, gallon versus Evaldi kind of in their own respective ways, very interesting shutout performances, or at least for the first six innings, you know, Gallon had a lot of hard contact that was, uh, you know, stopped at the warning track and caught. Uh, Eovaldi put a lot of guys on base, but never allowed them to come in. Um, what, what were your kind of, how are you kind of processing those, like, you know, first six innings of baseball? It was, yeah. I mean, it was a pitcher's duel that if two pitchers pitching very differently, right. Gallon had a no hitter going through six. He looked, unbelievable um i mean yeah he hadn't allowed a hit uh going into the sixth inning only one walk one base runner allowed at all um and you know he had gotten away with some hard contact that had you know that were that was hitting the right place for him but um you know finally uh he ended up getting hit a little bit and for Evaldi, i mean he allowed uh five walks in that game and uh, four hits in the first five innings. He didn't allow a hit in his last inning. Uh, yeah, he allowed the D-backs to get nine plate appearances with runners in scoring position. Actually, ten technically, but nine uh, counted because one was a sack bunt that we'll get into. And uh, they went over nine. So, I mean, you can count that as Avaldi escaped. You can count that as, like, he got a little lucky. But regardless, uh, you know, they, you know, for two pitches with very similar lines in that game, they pitched very differently. Yeah, for sure, for sure. You know, Gallon only had one walk compared to Eovaldi's five. Um, Gallon, I think, pitched far less with runners on base than Eovaldi did. But, um, you know, in those first six innings, got the same result as uh, as it goes for the scoreboard. Um, And then in the seventh inning, uh, Corey Seager gets on with, uh, by really placing it in the exact right spot, um, and you know this is not how you how Corey Seager usually gets on. He usually gets on with a really hard, you know, really hard uh, barrel or or something like that. Whereas in the seventh inning, uh, Corey Seager hit against the you know modified shift. You know there there was the third baseman was playing around the shortstop area. Uh, Seager hits it kind of closer to the left field line. Uh, it was hit. 67 miles per hour and had a had an expected batting average of 120 um so a 12 percent chance of being a hit but he found the he found the right spot and then evan carter takes a hanging breaking ball and lines it into the gap uh for a double to make it second and third uh and then finally mitch garver comes in and hits a really really hard ground ball through the hole up the middle for uh for a base hit and it was hit so hard that um, Evan Carter was not able to score on it. Uh, he was stopped at third, and eventually, Evan the Diamondbacks Ginkle. actually get out of it. Evan Ginkle, he was great all postseason. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And always, always an entertaining watch. You know, you always knew when you got that when he got that last out. You could, you could always tell. Yeah. Um. For what? So the Diamondbacks, uh, played the entire postseason very analytic based, right? I mean, they removed. Brandon Fodd from game three of the NLCS uh, when he was dealing. They did a bullpen game in game four, both in the World Series and in the NLCS. And it got them to where they eventually got to. But for whatever reason, they just decided to escape all of that in game five uh, with so many just questionable decisions that went against everything that they had gone through throughout the rest of the postseason. The biggest one, and they did this a few times in the World Series, but I mean, the, the most egregious example of game five was uh, bunting the three hitter in the third inning, which is insane to me. So, uh, Corbin Carroll and Catel Marte both reached base to begin the third inning. Uh, so they were men on set first and second with no one out. Gabriel Moreno coming up, and for whatever reason, Tori Lavello decided to bunt him, and eventually, uh, the runners did not score. Even if it worked, I still would have criticized this bunt because that's an outlandish thing to do. Um, you have, you know, when you're facing elimination, you have 27 outs to work with until your season ends. 
you got to make the most of those 27 outs and to give one of them away with one of your best hitters is a irrefutably bad decision even even like the people that defend bunting were questioning it last night um it was one of the it was one of the worst decisions i've seen in a world series game certainly and uh you know you definitely wonder if it might have cost the d-backs a couple runs because you know i mean i think there's a lot more momentum going their way if they're up one to nothing or two to nothing in those late innings right right for sure and you know for anyone thinking about what the bunt means you know for the the run expectancy between having a having men on first and second base with no. nobody out and the difference the difference between that and uh having men on second and third and one out the run expectancy actually goes down when you're second and third and one out and i imagine and you know that doesn't account for who's up at the plate so with gabriel moreno being up with first you know men on first and second and nobody out that run expectancy is even higher for a situation where um you you have first and second and nobody out so yeah i mean and ultimately even if the diamondbacks came through and you know the next batter gets an gets a two-run single um it, it wouldn't have made that that difference for them and um you know they they would have lost and i'm you know maybe that I, I know that the the energy is different when you're up to nothing versus um versus the other way around but still it, it wouldn't it 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 was very questionable and there's a reason why teams generally don't do that they don't generally bent, bunt their three hitter with yeah. uh men on first and second the logic um, for this from what i understand is that uh you know tori lavello really wanted to get the crowd into it and really get the momentum going on his side early because teams that score first in the postseason won a lot of these games um and uh, i think he had a quote that said like i'm gonna manage that first inning like a run scores a championship and i think that's kind of how he wanted to do it there which i mean trying to trying to settle for one or two runs in that situation is very questionable with that part of the order coming up so they have the bunt they don't execute with men on second and third even though it was you know successful bunt but i uh, didn't execute in that situation because you kind of have to you know you you have that one opportunity where there's a guy 90 feet away and you know you can not you don't have to get a hit in order to get that guy across um but once it hits two outs it's kind of anyone's game so that doesn't happen then in the seventh inning uh zach gallon allows his first base hit um and you said that they don't have any they didn't have anybody warming at the time no they didn't they didn't have anyone warming up when he came after the seventh inning um I, I don't disagree with bringing Zach Gallon after the seventh. I mean, he looked, you know, one, it's like, it, I mean, not that this is on Tori Lavello's mind, but it like, it, it takes you away from the scrutiny of taking a guy out early, you know, and having to avoid that discourse. Um, Obviously not on his mind, but, you know, I mean, he, he had been throwing a no-hitter. He only had allowed one base runner. He had nine strikeouts. Um. You know, I mean, he looked good enough to keep going, and obviously he's your ace pitcher, so it it makes reasonable sense. Um, but to not have anyone warming up is kind of absurd. I I would have taken him out after the Seager base hit. Uh, I mean, if anything, he's lucky Seager didn't homer there and, and give Texas the lead because you know he's capable of doing that at any point. Um, and uh, Tori Lavelle left him in. He gave up that double to Evan Carter. And he still left him in and let him give up that uh that base hit to Mitch Garver. And then Kevin Giggle came in and got out of that jam. And you wonder, maybe if he was in before a run had scored, there wouldn't have been a run on the board. And, you know, I mean, that, you know, like I said, I think in an earlier game or with a different pitcher, the D-backs wouldn't have let him even go out for the seventh. Um, but they got away from that. And... The third time through the order discourse is, you know, very prevalent nowadays, especially in the playoffs. And I get that it sucks that we we get robbed of like deep pitching duels because managers don't let guys face the order a third time. But it's real. It's a real thing. You can't like as good as Gallon looked, he looked like a different pitcher when the order saw him a third time. And that's just what it was. Uh yeah, that is true and 
statistically throughout the season, throughout the regular season, at least, um, Gallon had uh, the the OPS against Gallon the second time through the order was 610. And the third time through the order, it was 836. So his OPS against jumped um, jumped uh, 226 points from second time through the order through uh, till third time through the order. And also batting average jumped from 216 to 295. Um, so just all numbers kind of got worse uh, third time through the order. But, you know, you, you do understand, you know, everyone understands each situation comes a, comes a little differently. Um, I don't fully blame Lavello for not taking him out after the Seager hit because it was it was extremely weakly hit and, you know, it, it found the right spot. But after the Carter double, um, especially that was a that was a hanging breaking ball that was not well located. It didn't look like a pitch the gallon was throwing, you know, all night. Uh, you know, you, you really have to be prepared there in that situation. You know, you have to have people warming no, no matter who's pitching, no matter how many pitches a, a guy's at, when you're in an elimination game, you yeah. need to have guys warming in the sixth inning and beyond that, at least um, even, you know, fourth, fifth inning, you need to have guys prepared because it's an elimination game. And uh, it, it surprised me that Lavello didn't have anyone, ha- have anyone warmed because like that, that is the situation you need to have, you know, full focus on who's coming in after your starter. Um, and, you know, Gallon was doing was doing pretty well, but, you know, you, you need to have guys prepared. I mean, I know, you know, we're, we're old enough to remember 2021 World Series Game 3 where Ian Anderson was taken out after five no-hit innings um, and, and the discourse from that, and the Braves won that game. Um, so, like, you know, you, you, you need to – you need to be prepared in, in those situations, even if it's, you know, even if it's going to have some scrutiny with it. Yeah. Somewhere, somewhere Kevin Cash is smiling, knowing yeah. that all the scrutiny he got, uh, you know, was, was unjustified because I mean that there, that, that right there, that's the alternate timeline where he leaves Blake Snell in and the Dodgers start scoring runs. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, so yeah, ultimately, ultimately the D-backs give up one run in the, in the inning, and then uh, and then four in the ninth inning. Uh, you know, which was not in the in the cards. You know, no people weren't really expecting that to happen. Um, and then yeah, eventually the Rangers end up uh end up winning. And you know, to go back to Nathan Eovaldi's night, he you know didn't was not dominant necessarily in you know, striking guys out or keeping guys off the bases. But, you know, he, he did, he allowed the right type of contact, you know, after going six shutout innings, you know, going six shutout innings, he allowed uh, two batted balls out of 17 in the speed spot zone. That's an extremely low percentage, usually about a third of, of, of a pitcher's batted balls against are in the sweet spot. Uh, Eovaldi was only at like 12, 13%. Uh, and then, also, only two of the 17 batted balls he allowed had 500 expected batting averages or higher. Um, so he prevented the good type of contact that, you know, ends up getting hits and probably a lot of the reason why he got out of the, out of so many of those jams. Yeah, no, I would I would agree. I mean, he he did allow the right kind of contact when he needed it the most. It, it was a it was a solid performance. You know, you've already found different ways to get outs and and get you know scoreless innings and whatnot throughout the postseason sometimes it was striking out a bunch of people sometimes it was getting really really soft contact and you know he he just always seemed to find a way outside of game one um even though the rangers won that game he always just seemed to find a way to have have a really effective performance yeah no he absolutely did um yeah he yeah I, i should check out the final postseason stats for Eovaldi because uh you know only one bad start I want to say it was like a 295 ERA yeah yeah that sounds about right because I know he entered the game with a 352 and then he threw six shutout innings yeah 295 ERA and 298 FIP in six postseason starts in 2023 for Nathan Eovaldi um and this comes literally the a month following uh, maybe the worst month of his career yep. where, where he had a nine three Oh ERA in, uh, 
in I think five or six starts uh with the Rangers. Yeah. Um, you know, good good story there. Like just seemed to turn it on turn it on at the right time. Um and yeah, his his playoff legacy will will definitely be uh will definitely be you know put on a up it'll definitely be uplifted through this through this yeah. one. Um Corey Seeger's obviously I mean I feel like Corey Seeger now his postseason legacy it it makes it so that it'll his his Hall of Fame track is much easier. He doesn't have to get as many regular season accolades as your average player does because of how great he's been in the postseason and how effective he was in the two World Series that he he won. I mean, he's not even 30 yet, and he's going to approach, you know, 1,000 games played, 4,000 played appearances next year. He's already got a 134 career uh, OPS plus, 32 B-War. Yeah, I mean, he's got a clear path for the Hall of Fame right now. And, yeah, two World Series and two World Series MVPs to go with it is huge. Yeah, and, and uh, you know, I know we we always kind of start by quantifying, you know, a player's Hall of Fame status by the wins above replacement. It's not the only thing. It's just kind of something you start off with and you look at like, oh, this guy has 45 and re- and retired. Like, yeah, that's probably not a Hall of Famer. But, you know, I think w- when w- when we start to see someone who we're really, really considering as Hall of Fame caliber, you kind of start at like 60 wins above replacement. For Seager, with how effective with how great these two postseason runs have been 2020 and 2023 i feel like that conversation is is more like at 50 wins above replacement for him yep especially if he has if he continues to hit like he did um this year if he does this for like two or three more years it feels like he he'd be destined to go into the hall of fame um with uh with you know how he's been hitting you know, how he hit in the regular season, the season this year and how he hit in the postseason in 2020 and 2023. Um, so, yeah, I mean, any what what other like legacies do we think are really being? Um, well, Bruce Bochy. Yeah. Has to be. I mean, four time World Series winning manager. Uh, that puts him up with like Joe Torre. It puts him up with uh, uh, like all of the all of the greatest managers. Uh in major league history all the guys that have been through dynasties right yeah whoops it's uh so it's walter alston and joe torrey tying bruce bochy at four connie mack at five and then casey stengel and joe mccarthy at seven yeah and those guys were yeah like prime yankees managers i imagine or or a's or a's yeah yeah philadelphia a's by the way philadelphia a's yeah not not, not no 70s dynasty A's. We're talking late 20s, early 30s. Mm-hmm. Or Miller Huggins isn't there. And um early 1910s uh with the A's. Yeah, uh yeah, like Bruce Bochy's legacy for sure. Like the fact that, you know, the fact that uh the first year he's there, they win a World Series. I mean that's, out of retirement. Yeah. Like it's 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 wild. What will be funny and extremely extremely annoying is when the manager of the year uh award comes out and it's not it's he's probably not going to win it. I feel like he he might win it, but I feel like Brandon Hyde might get the Brandon Hyde the probably nod. should get it. Yeah, especially like we we forget hundred one hundred one games. Yeah, you you forget that these awards are voted on uh early. Yeah. They were voted on probably like October 2nd because that was the day after the regular mm-hmm. season ended. And, you know, especially like from a writer's perspective, the Rangers had just fallen out of the um, American League West and, and had to go into the wild card. Whereas, you know, the Orioles had, you know, won the division. And after, you know, winning 83 games last year and not really um, and not really doing too much in the offseason. So it probably will go to Brandon Hyde. So it'll be funny to have that, you know, yeah, conversation about uh, should the manager of the year really be voted on the regular season? And in my opinion, it should never be voted on. It shouldn't be an award. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was say it means I don't know if there's like contracts and managers like contract clauses for managers that say like if you win manager there you get X number of dollars. I think yeah, I don't know. I mean, yeah, I I don't think. 
I think I could do without it because it's not people don't even really talk about it the same way that they talk about like MVPs, Cy Young, and Rookie of the Year. Um, as far as legacies go, I think another one that we should not forget is Adolis Garcia. I know that he wasn't, you know, on the roster for games three, four, and five. He had an injury, unfortunately, or well, after game three rather. Um, but we can't forget about what he did leading up to his injury. A twelve ninety three OPS in the American League Championship Series, and he kind of essentially like single handedly led them uh, to the World Series. I mean, he had a seventeen percent CWPA in an NL in an ALCS. Like you don't see that a lot and then obviously the walk-off home run in game one like he he truly took like he took over the postseason as much as one player can in baseball when he was on the field and you know he didn't he didn't have a game-winning hit in the clinching clinching game he didn't have that moment you know late in the series but we can't forget what he did when he was on the field yeah for sure uh from game from game four the alcs through game three of the world series he hit 407 with a 1574 OPS, uh, along with a win probability added of 1.083, which is like a full win, and a championship win probability added of 34.44%. Um, that's, by the way, ALCS game four through World Series game three. He basically like, yeah, he, he gave the Rangers, according to championship win probability added, uh, a 34% better chance of winning the World Series, which is uh, which is pretty remarkable. And yeah, he his I don't think Rangers fans are going to forget how amazing he was down the stretch and in the you know most important games for sure. No doubt. Um, especially with that walk off home run in Game One. Um, and it kind of it kind of sucks for for him and and uh, how it's looked at that in that game where he had the three run homer off of Justin Verlander, they lost that one. Cause that was a crazy important home run, but because they lost, it didn't end up necessarily meaning anything. <laughs> kind of yep. sucked. Yeah. Yeah. But that's why, that's why you have individual statistics and individual, individual awards, because sometimes the team can, cannot respond to, to what you do. Um, yeah. Garcia's postseason legacy is, is uh amazing and and yeah i mean i think also and you've you press preface this a couple times is like the organizational legacy and the style of the style of you know going out maybe maybe prematurely even to a lot of folks include like what they what they did was premature to us for sure in you know signing three guys in the span of Two years. three guys in the span of two years who were worth you know 175 plus million dollar contracts you know that's after a 62 in season in 2021 and you know they they just don't really care and just get the guys they want and they ended up getting rewarded for it yeah i mean i i really wonder if teams will start using that method i say probably not um but I mean, shout out to yeah. I mean, Marcus Semyon, Corey Seager, and Jacob Degrom. You know, all of them came over after pretty brutal seasons. Uh, seeing the vision that Chris Young had, seeing the vision that the organization had put together, and I mean, it took them it took them a year after Degrom, two years for Semyon and Seager, um, to get all the way to the World Series and to win the the whole thing. Um, and I mean, I, I preface this on the on couple shows ago but shout out to marcus samian as well he was the first of those dominoes to fall you know i mean he came over as the first big name uh you know seeing and i mean it, it paid off big time you know i'm sure he had an idea that Corey seager was coming because he signed the next day uh to obviously unfortunately he wasn't much of a factor in the playoffs but i mean you know that was another sign that like you know this team is serious about what they're doing here i mean also trading for montgomery and serger at the deadline uh was another one I mean, Montgomery probably went down as the best, uh, you know, trade deadline acquisition by any team this year. Uh, you know, a rental, a guy that made a major difference in the World Series rotation and in the playoffs entirely uh, that didn't really cost that much. Um, yeah, I mean, it was Chris Young made the right moves. And I mean, you know, ownership bought in at the right time, clearly. Um, and it was, it was it was just very good execution all around in the front office. 
Yeah, for sure. And, um, you know, good farm system development as well. Um, you know, with Josh Young made a, made a big impact in these playoffs, uh, Evan Carter, like his, his impact cannot be talked about enough. Um, you know, just a 21 year old kid, he's rookie eligible next year. Uh, let's not forget. And, you know, Leody Tavares also played a role. He was acquired in the Joey Gallo trade that happened, um, in the middle of 2021. So, you know, it was a combination of the great veterans that they signed and uh, and traded for, as well as you know the young developing team, the uh, young developing prospects that that were flourishing into MLB talent. Um, and yeah, like I that was, you know, you took the words right out of my mouth in talking about their trade deadline because yeah, the, it is a large reason of why they won this World Series is is that trade deadline. Uh, it can't be emphasized enough the impact that Jordan Montgomery had and they didn't really give up too much for him. If I, yeah. if I recall my, myself um, also Max Scherzer, like in the 45 innings he threw for, for the Rangers uh, he had a three, two ERA and three, four, one fifth in the, in the regular season with, with the Rangers. So and he's back for next year. Yeah. He's back for next year and will probably be impactful for the Rangers with that. Um, yeah, I mean, you look at that entire starting rotation between, you know, whether it be Montgomery, Eovaldi, uh, Scherzer uh, down the stretch, Dane Dunning or uh, Andrew Heaney. Those were all acquired by Chris Young in the last or except for Dunning. But Heaney, yeah, Heaney, Scherzer, Eovaldi, Montgomery, uh, those were all chris young acquisitions in the last couple of years that were going to cost a bit of money but they but they went ahead and did it uh even like john gray like that's a that was an investment that the rangers made uh after a 102 loss season you know he's being paid 14 million a year and they get rewarded with three shutout shutout innings when max scherzer goes down so it all came together it all really came together organizationally for the rangers it did. Uh, I'm excited to see where they go from here because I can't imagine they're just going to become complacent because, you know, I'm assuming this this model of spending big and becoming, uh, you know, a, a more serious big market team was probably a more long term plan than just, hey, we're going to win a World Series in two years and then we're going to, you know, figure it out from there. Like, you know, I'm, I'm sure they're going to be in on a lot of big free agents this offseason, maybe not Shohei Otani, but like. I wouldn't be surprised to go see them get or go after like a Blake Snell. I wouldn't see them be surprised to see them go after a Yamamoto, like, uh, or maybe another bat. Like, I I wouldn't be surprised to see them just keep going and say, "Hey, we're gonna try to do it again." By the way, yeah, yeah, for sure. And by the way, like you know, obviously they didn't seem like they had a lot of trouble recruiting when they, you know, when they had a when they were coming off sixty win seasons, but. There's a lot more incentive for free agents to go there, you know, when when they're putting down these big time offers. Yeah, for because sure. I think it's going to be, you know, I think it's going to be a very competitive offseason with free agents. Uh, there's not a whole lot out there, but there's definitely teams that have needs. And uh, I think, you know, it's going to be a offseason of some big spending and the Rangers have shown that they have no problem doing that. And I think it's going to be a lot easier for them to convince guys to come over when it's, hey, Look how quickly this model worked. It's going to work again. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, the the ring is is definitely enough of a of a selling point for you know potential potential free agents. And going back to you know how they've given out contracts in the past few years. I mean, they've given out a lot of good con, a lot of a lot of bigger contracts, bigger you know mid level to high level markets with obviously Seager and Simeon, Jacob Degrom. Uh, and then going down to John Gray and Nathan Eovaldi, like there have been a lot of bad contracts being been that have been handed out in the last couple of years where it already seems like it's blowing up in the team's face. And the Rangers don't really have that. The the only example you could maybe point to is Jacob deGrom. And that was, that's because of injury. And yes, his, his injury history might've been, or his injury might've been a little bit more predictable than, than your average player getting injured. However, still, they have him for, you know, three more years after this. And he had, I think, a one four FIP or something like that in the in the games he did pitch. So it, it wasn't because of performance. Whereas Seeger and Simeon, they paid them, you know, they, they combined to give them five hundred million dollars 
in total value, uh, or they're they're going to end up com- combining to pay five hundred million dollars for them. And they were both extremely; they've both been extremely, extremely good in these two years. Um, they have not fallen off from their prior performance, and in fact, Seager has improved from his prior performance dramatically. Yeah, yeah. Like, I mean, he he's about to enter his prime. It feels like. Yeah, and like MVP finalist this year, probably MVP runner-up this year for sure. Um, Marcus Simeon is is gonna get MVP votes most likely. Uh, he was really really effective this year and pretty good last year as well. Uh, you know, uh, John Gray was pretty effective. Uh, you know, effective in the postseason. He had a four-year, fifty-six million dollar deal, and Nathan Eovaldi was signed for two years, thirty-four million dollars, and uh, you know. We we saw how he did in this postseason. I mean, ERA and FIP under three, and was a lot of the reason why they won this World Series. So, like, it wasn't just that they were throwing money at guys; they threw money at the right guys, and it yep. ended up in a World Series championship. Yeah, I mean, they could have easily ended up with Carlos Correa instead uh, of Seeker, yeah. and you know, one of them has been more productive than the other. They could have easily ended up uh, with, yeah, I mean, someone else that hasn't yeah. been as effective. They could have ended up with, you know, uh. I don't know who are some other examples. Taiwan Walker. Taiwan, yeah, Taiwan Walker, Jamison Tyone instead of instead of Jacob Degrom, which not that that one made much of a difference, but over John Gray even. Over Eval like. Over Eovaldi, yeah, over Andrew Heaney. Taiwan Walker has a higher average annual value than Nathan Eovaldi. Yeah. Um, and, and so the Rangers definitely chose wisely. Like, mm-hmm. I know that Eovaldi definitely he was injured in 2022. There were some question marks about him. Didn't know, you know, kind of an inconsistent career throughout, and ended up and ended up this year throwing. I don't know. I think it was like 140 innings or so, um, three six three ERA. But ultimately, in the playoffs, was extremely extremely necessary. So, yeah, I mean, it, it's not only spending but also smart spending on the Rangers end, and that's that's the only way it could have gone from 60 wins to 90 wins in two year span is those contracts all seeming to work out and that's kind of what's been happening. Yeah. I mean, it's been very efficient spending, no doubt. You know, I mean, I, I know DeGrom looks questionable right now. But, uh, you know, I mean, I think that was, it was something that they planned for. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And when he, whenever he does come back, I'd be surprised if his, is if his performance is significantly worse than it was pre Tommy John surgery. Um, yeah. so yeah. Uh, yeah, the the Rangers definitely organizationally like it'll be interesting. It's it's far easier for teams to for for owners to want to model after a team that wins the World Series by uh not spending too much and, you know, playing small ball, you know, like the 2015 Royals than if they were to model after the high spending team because by the way, I mean, I think like I think all of the last like I don't know, eight World Series championships have gone to teams that have spent like top 10 or like had a yeah. top 10 payroll Well, because it's here's the thing it's it's easy to put like throw your hands and say like well like the dodgers won the world series this year we can't spend like the dodgers or the yankees won or the you know the mets won but the rangers that's different right like that's a mid mid like market team that was like you know what we have the money let's go out and do what we can and bring it home and there are a lot of teams in that bracket uh, in that financial bracket that have that can do that if they want to, uh, that now have a like that now have an example that say you know hey you know what we not we might not be able to spend like the Dodgers but if we spend the right way, like we can we can you know still accomplish what they want to. Yeah, I mean the Rangers went from, according to Spot Track, they went from spending ninety five million dollars on the team in twenty twenty one to two hundred fifty million dollars on this team. Yeah. Um, and you know, we can have that conversation about how all MLB owners can can definitely afford to do more. Uh, in case typically. you're wondering, the the Cleveland Guardians uh, pay or spend ninety eight million dollars this year. That's how much the Rangers spent two years ago. Yeah, yeah, they're they're spending at the Guardians level. Um, mm-hmm. and yeah, I mean they they spent a lot they spent efficiently as you um to use your phrase and uh and yeah it worked out tremendously for them um yeah any anything more to talk about with this uh with this whole championship here um 
I don't know about the championship, but this is definitely something I wanted to note for the postseason. Um, can we talk about how much of a non-factor the pitch clock seemed to be? Oh, yeah. Like, yeah. a lot of people were concerned about, you know, oh, like, it, it's going to ruin the big moments. You know, it's going to, there's going to be tense moments where you're not going to have that time between pitches. And I paid attention during those moments to see, like, okay, does it feel like this is worse with the pitch clock? And I really didn't, like, notice it. Like, there were plenty of that-bats throughout the postseason. The first one that I recognized was the, uh, the Ronald Acuna Jr. bases loaded at-bat in Game 4 of the NLDS against the Phillies. You know, it was the one where he flew out to center field, and I remember thinking, okay, this is a huge moment. This is the biggest individual at-bat of these playoffs. Let's see if it feels like this is too rushed. And it didn't it would go back and watch that at-bat. You probably didn't feel that way. I, there were some in, uh, you know, in like, I mean, most of the World Series games, it definitely felt like that. In game one, you know, if you watch the late innings of game one, it didn't feel that way. If you watch... um. The ALCS Game 5 with the Astros and Rangers, if you watch NLCS Games 3 and 4 with the Diamondbacks and Phillies, there were a lot of big at-bats. Go watch the uh, like the John Singleton at-bat in Game 7, or in Game 6, uh, whichever game it was where the Astros lost. Like that's a, that's a moment where it's like, it's everything, right? And the pitch clock didn't know, seem to make that much of a difference in the intensity of the at-bat. And obviously the games were shorter, which is great. Uh, which is what MLB wanted. And it really didn't feel like it took away from that much of the game. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, <clears throat> yeah, regarding that, like, you know, there, there's an easy counter to to the argument of, like, it ruining the big moment. And, like, there's there's a lot of times, they're probably just in the last in the last playoffs alone, like, a lot of times where it was, like, bases loaded, you know, we got two outs here, you know, a, a, a single will change everything about this game. And, you know, the guy just steps off and just kind of like has his has his catcher come over and you know like a moment that probably would not have happened you know with the limited step-offs and everything like a moment that probably wouldn't have happened this year or like yeah this year like you there was a there was a good pace to it and the fact that you know none of these games seemed to linger on for that long like there was no there was no uh an example I like to talk about is the 2019 World Series game three where it was a four to one game and it went over four hours long um didn't have any of that this this uh postseason so yeah I mean it ultimately it's a it's another win for the pitch clock yeah there were uh four pitcher violations the entire postseason I'm trying to gonna see how many hitter ones there were and I feel like uh, none of them ended in at bat no. No, none of them ended in a bat, and also like, no one really cared. Yeah, no. Like name name one of the pitchers that had a violation this postseason. Yeah, I can't name any of them. Exactly. Um, and most people probably can't either. Yeah. Um, it, it's funny to think. Clock, that... Yeah. The pitch clock did exactly what it was supposed to this year, and I don't really feel like it took away that much of the game. Yeah, I mean the. The clinching game of the World Series ended in less than three hours. It's cool. Um, yeah, so and it's funny thinking back to um, like late February, early March when remember that that walk off pitch violation in the Red Sox. Spring of course I do. Game? I was watching it live. Yeah. And then all the complaints were like, this is imagine a World Series game ends like this. Like, come on, we, we got to get rid of this. Like people, everyone overreacting and. Yeah, now now that it's October and there were four total pitch violations in what the entire playoffs, you said? I think so, yeah. Maybe yeah. that was just pitcher ones. There was a couple batter ones, but nothing crazy happened. Nothing crazy, nothing in a big moment. It was probably a thing where it was made in an 0-1 or an or a 1-0 count. And I think there was one there was one and it was Max Kepler. Yeah. So <laughs> five five total timer violations in many 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 batter pitcher interactions you know everyone got used to it i think maybe umpires gave like maybe a, a second of leeway sometimes probably but ultimately it made it made the quality of the of the game better um you know it just it made everything better yeah i mean the pitch clock massive success based on what mlb wanted it to do it did every it it kind of exceeded the expectations it shortened the games uh 
it didn't shorten the action. I mean, like, you know, like uh, batting averages were up this year, right? <laughs> By a whole four points. Um, and, it didn't, and it didn't make any serious, uh, like there was like the most egregious pitch clock moment was that spring training game on, it was not even March yet. Like it, it, yeah, it was a, and it was also just like, no one was even talking about it by June. Like the, the number of violations went down per month, you know, guys were getting more used to it. And yeah, I mean, it, it did a very, very good job at what it was supposed to do. Yeah. I remember, um, I think passing putting out a tweet in like August or, or something where it was like a full day of like 15 MLB games where there was no, uh, violations at all on like, you know, thousands of pitches uh yeah. and there were no violations so yeah like ultimately a good thing i think viewership like viewership was technically like up this year Ticket viewership was up, up attendance was up i know that there's the whole world series thing i think that's more of an indictment on how major how accessible major league baseball makes the games than it was the matchup and and people's interest i mean i know that like yeah the fact that it was diamondbacks rangers didn't help the world series ratings but uh you know, I don't think it accounted for people on streaming services. I don't think it accounted for people on illegal sites, which I'm sure would have upped it uh, quite a bit. Yeah, because I remember I remember like an article came out about that in like 2018 when it was literally the Red Sox and the Dodgers, two of the biggest market teams. And I was thinking like, yeah, sometimes like sometimes I'm on the go and I'm watching this on my phone and not like and uh, yeah. this whole entire playoffs. I was watching it on like Fubo, which is not like a regular cable company and probably doesn't account for the ratings the same way as like if i was on xfinity like not only that but i think there's also just less people that watch tv in general like if you look at the world and i'm sure this is a thing for every sport if you look at the world series ratings over the last like 50 years it's been on a decline and it's i think just because less people watch tv in general right like back in the you know 60s 70s 80s 90s like you, you like there wasn't a lot of baseball on and the world series is one of very few like chances you had to watch baseball throughout the season so naturally there was a lot more of an interest now you get 162 games a year for all 30 teams uh plus even some minor league if you have uh, mlb tv um i know the, the the biggest issue of course is that you don't get your local team uh via streaming but that's an entirely separate issue um yeah i'm not i'm not too drawn aback by the uh by the low world series ratings because attendance was up this year uh dramatically attendance was up this year viewership was up this year uh and yeah I, i'm not worried sports fine yeah and the same thing literally is happening in the nba and literally no one no one ever talks about like man nba is it's falling it's gonna be a dead sport in 15 years like literally yeah. no one says that so no. um yeah and and like i think just looking at stats i think like last year's nba finals had like half the viewers by cable than it uh as it did like yeah. six six seven years prior um yeah. so and that's that's not a quote-unquote dying sport there's plenty of people watching the nba so yeah naturally people were going to be talking about about all of that but i don't know i'm not i'm not wildly wildly concerned about it um so yeah i think that that I think, show yeah. I, I think mlb just needs to look at that and say all right how do we make it more accessible to other audiences? Because yeah, I mean, a lot of people use streaming, a lot of people, and like a lot of people have trouble getting the games via streaming. And also, I don't know if the streaming like viewers even count uh, at all. Yeah. So uh, yeah, I, I, I'm not, I don't think it's like, Oh, baseball has a problem because like the sport of baseball has a problem because of its ratings. I think it's MLB has a problem because of its ratings. I think those are very different things. Yeah, for sure. Like I watched I watched, you know, the the playoffs on many, many different devices, whether it be my mm -hmm. TV, my laptop, my phone. Um, and I don't know I don't know if those cable ratings account for all that. Whereas, you know, in in the nineteen nineties, everyone was watching on their television. Yeah, because that was the only thing you could do. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, you know, you never know. You never know. Um yeah, anything anything more before we wrap this up? Uh, it is well, I mean, first of all, I mean, it, this is this was what season technically like four and a half of ARR. Um yes. is that our, what we're calling fourth, it? Our fourth full season, our fifth full postseason. Yeah, I mean, really third full season. 
but oh yeah, know. true. Yeah, but I mean, it's you know, obviously, this was a very uh transitional year for us personally. Chris and I both graduated college uh this year, so we're now in the uh you know post Springfield College era of ARR, and I mean, we don't plan on stopping anytime soon. So, uh. It's cool that we were still able to do this. Uh, if you listened at all this year, we thank you. Thank you to uh, Foolish Bailey. Thank you to Mike Petriello. Thank you to uh, Mark Simon and Chris Catillo for coming on as guests here. I think that's everyone, right? Yeah. Whoops. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was another fun year, this podcast. I mean, we got another fun offseason ahead. We have some obviously very interesting free agency, most notably Shohei Otani. We have Yoshinobu Yamamoto coming over from Japan. Uh, we have my most anticipated Hall of Fame season maybe in my lifetime. I am beyond excited for this one. I've been talking about it since the 2020-21 to 21 off offseason. Uh, we have Adrian Beltre on the ballot this year. We have uh, Joe Maurer on the ballot this year. We have Chase Utley on the ballot this year. David Wright, Adrian Gonzalez, Matt Holliday. Uh, a lot of very interesting conversations to be had. Uh, it's the year that Todd Helton is going to get in. It's the year that Billy Wagner should get in. It's a year where Andrew Jones can set himself up to get in next get in next year. Uh, it's going to be a very fun November through January for me. Maybe not for everyone, just because Hall of Fame discourse can be very draining. But uh, you know that I live for that stuff, and uh, it's this is the year. Yeah, it'll be it'll be interesting. I think the the conversation has become a little like less draining with a lot with of the steroid the, guys being off. Honestly, yeah. a lot it, of yeah. The, I mean, like it sucks that they're not in, but I I'm very okay with the fact that we don't have to talk about that anymore. Yeah, people will still bring it up, and that's fine because yes, I agree that Fonz and Clemens should have gotten in, and you know whatever. But it's over now. You know, I mean, it's not, and also they're not even on the. Uh, you know, era ballot this year, which that's another conversation because that's definitely a very unpredictable one. It's all managers, executives, umpires. Yeah. This year for eras. Yeah, for sure. Like, uh, like, yeah. So, you know, it, it can be a very circular conversation with that. So not having to deal with that outside of like Alex Rodriguez and Manny Ramirez who were actually yeah. suspended for PEDs. Like, yeah, I mean, that's a different story. Yeah. That's, you know, outside of those guys, like none of those, none of those types of players being on the ballot is, you know, it definitely bring takes yeah. away a, a bad layer of it. Um, so Todd, Todd Helton, real quick. Todd Helton needs to gain 11 votes uh, that he didn't get last year, which I think he will have no problem doing. I think he'll get in with at least 80% this year. Billy Wagner needs to gain 27 votes. Uh, he gained, I think, 45 last year just pre-election. So I think that'll be no problem for him. I know that he probably won't gain at the steepest rate. I think he'll take kind of the route that Scott Rowland did last year where, you know, he gained at a very slow rate because most of the people that, you know, were going to vote for him already did. Um, and then, you know, Andrew Jones missed by 66 votes last year. I don't think he's going to gain that many, but I think he could, I think he could kind of do what Billy Wagner did last year, gain a lot of votes and get up to, high like the high 60s maybe even low 70s this year and set himself up nicely uh to be in a good position to get in in 2025 and i know that's your guy chris you're a big andrew jones fan uh yeah. you're big on his candidacy so there is a lot to look forward to and like i mentioned adrian beltray he's going to get in this year uh, i'm very excited to see how joe mauer debuts i'm very excited to see how uh chase utley debuts uh unfortunately i don't think david wright i think he'll stay on the ballot but not uh, make enough traction to get in really sucks because he was I mean he's the guy where if he didn't get injured he was there like he was still there but uh, regardless it's going to be a very exciting year yeah it'll it'll be interesting it'll be interesting to see like how much some of these guys climb considering there are like three really really good candidates that are coming on the ballot but yeah I'm not like I'm not sure what the percentage of ballots last year had like 10 guys on it um i'm also just very excited for the fact that this is the first time i think in the arr uh, since 2020 that we've had a slam dunk first ballot hall of famer on the ballot because you know david ortiz got in first ballot but there was definitely some question on whether he would actually get in first year or not i think he only made it by like six votes or something 
yeah, but Adrian Belcher is going to yeah, like Adrian Belcher is going to get ninety percent of the vote. He's gonna he's gonna clean house on that ballot. Like, there's no need to question it. Yeah, yeah, three thousand um, hit guy. Yeah, three thousand. Yeah, like he lover. he checks every box you can imagine. A great defense, like a top five. Uh, for, I mean, a top five third baseman all time, but also great defensively. Uh, a very interesting career. Certainly, yeah, a three thousand hit guy. He had the counting stats. He had. 477 home runs most of those coming in his 30s um you know he was very he was a a a fan favorite in every market that he played in obviously texas but also the one year he spent in boston years he spent in seattle the time he had in la with the dodgers 93 war i mean that you know that's an all that's all-timer territory yeah yeah for sure for sure um yeah, so the, it'll be it'll be fun to talk about that and you know reminisce about um, Adrian Beltre's career uh, when when it comes time to talk about his career and his Hall of Fame candidacy, um, which is pretty overwhelming. Um, so yeah, that'll be that'll be a lot of the off season, you know, talking about free agency as well. Um, we're considering kind of doing like a a position by pr- position breakdown of rankings and such, yep. um, sort of like how MLB Network does it. So. Um, and how, you know, fool, I, I love like foolish Bailey's, t- uh, the, the foolish 50 foolish every 50, year. Yeah. Um, so it'll be, it would be fun to like, see where, where our picks match up versus his and, mm-hmm. and MLB networks. Cause he, he already compares his to MLB network and such. So, you know, it'll be, um, it, it could be fun to do that. Yeah. So, I mean, the off season, a lot of the time is, like the podcast is as quality or better in the off season based on, you know, it's, it's a really, really open conversation uh, all the time. And um, it's, it's a lot of hypothetical discussion because, you know, there's, there's nothing on the field going on, but yeah, um, there can be, there can be a lot of fun discussion to be had. So keep, uh, you know, keep your, keep your eyes and ears peeled for ARR in the off season. Um, It's funny to think like when we started, uh, I think the first like, I think nine of the first ten months of the podcast was off season because yep. it started and then we we cover the postseason and then the pandemic happened. Yeah, and then it was all off season. So, yeah, yeah, I think our yeah I think our first like debriefing a regular season episode was like, what like episode forty six. Forty six, yeah, forty six <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um. So yeah, very funny how that happened. Maybe it was like um, forty seven. I don't know, but yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, um, or yeah, I think, yeah, I think, I think it was right. 47 because 45 was Eddie Matthews, yeah. uh, 46, 46 was, was like predictions, and then 47 was my how about that is Colin Moran, yeah, <laughs> yeah, first how about that, um, yeah. very fun, very fun, so yeah, um, that should do it for this installment of Above Replacement Radio, we, we hope you enjoyed this one, if you are listening on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and want to watch the conversation as it happens, go to the YouTube channel, it is called Above Replacement Radio, um, also follow me on social media at Chris underscore Gianta. Follow Daniel on both Twitter and Instagram at Daniel underscore current and follow the show Instagram uh, at above replacement radio for all the show needs. We hope you enjoy this one and we hope to see you next time where we will be doing, we will be talking uh, the BBWAA awards. We'll do our custom awards and we'll also be talking about our hits and misses of our players to watch. There were many the misses. Episode. Tune in for those. Many misses. It's going to be a fun episode next week, so check that out. We will see yeah. you then. This conversation. This conversation is over. Is over. <laughs>